Let us pray. Father, we are again grateful for your word. We ask you to give us ears to hear what you'd have us to hear, hearts to receive it, and a will to do what you'd have us to do. We ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I hope you've noticed over the past, well now since, I think since May, that our lectionary has been taking us step by step through the book of Romans. We haven't always preached from the book of Romans, but our readings, our epistle readings, uh, almost since going back to Pentecost, have been from the book of Romans. And last week I did preach from Romans, and we talked about the fact that we read the first verses of chapter number 12, and we saw that this is the transition point in Paul's letter to the Romans. In the first half or, or more than half of the letter, he has talked about right belief. Here is what you are to believe. Here is right doctrine. Here is orthodoxy. And then after chapter 12 or in chapter 12, he moves to right action. Here is what you are to do. And here is what we'd call orthopraxy, right? Right belief and then right action. And right there in the beginning of chapter 12, we have the intersection of right belief and right action, which we see as right worship. The proper orientation of ourselves towards God, of our entire selves towards God. The sacrifice, the submission of our bodies, our minds, our wills to His truth, goodness, and beauty. And the first step from that, the first step from that sacrifice yourselves is to put ourselves in a place of humility. Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought. Without this humility, it is impossible to be properly oriented towards God because we are oriented towards ourselves in our preoccupation with either our goodness or our badness. We are oriented towards ourselves. So having established this as the linchpin, the intersection of right belief and right action, Paul then gives us a whole flood of imperatives, actions and attitudes expected from those who, as Paul has said earlier, were baptized into Christ. In the passage that Will just read, I count 30 different imperatives in a short passage. Things you must do, attitudes you must have. This is what is expected of God's people. And it would be a healthy practice to thoughtfully and prayerfully read through these and examine your own lives and how they how you are living according to what God expects of His people. We do not have time to do this this morning. So I'm going to focus simply on the first of these imperatives. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. It should be no surprise... Or nor should we think it a coincidence that these are the first of this long string of moral imperatives. For love, perhaps, is the source of this stream. 
Love is the reason, if you will, that we do all the moral actions that God expects of his people. It is from such passages as this that St. Augustine will give the foundation of Christian ethics the principle, love God and do whatever you want to do. Because if, you love, if your loves are properly oriented, your actions will be properly oriented as well. Love properly and you will act properly. So to the person who wants to worship God rightly, humbly submitting himself to God, Paul says, we will start with your loves. And he starts with the quality of our love. Let love be genuine or without hypocrisy. In other words, Paul starts with what is perhaps the hardest and seemingly most impossible thing. One commentator said in reflecting on this passage, Any man who seeks to make his words a true picture of his emotions must be aware that few harder precepts have ever been given than the brief one of the apostles, let love be without hypocrisy. Pure love does not come natural to us. How many of our words and even actions expressing love are but thinly veiled expressions of selfish desires. Our love, our profession of love, of truth and goodness. We will confess these while in a community that still reveres it and honors us for confessing it. But when in a community that does not revere it and would look askance at us for confessing truth, How often does our love wane? Perhaps we don't love the truth as much as we thought we did. Perhaps we love the honor and respect that some communities will give us for confessing it more. So too our love for people often. We love them less than we love how they make us feel. You're pleasing to me. You make me feel good. I love you. And behind that I love you is, I love the good feeling I have. I love the good things you can do for me. Now don't get me wrong, and I'll mention this again later. It is not wrong to be pleased by other people. It is not wrong. It is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing for other people to make you feel good or to do good things for you. And to enjoy that. And to love that. But often we confess sacrificial love. True love for that person. For that person's sake. We're really confessing behind that. You please me. And it is again a thinly veiled expression of our own selfish desires. And our loves are not always genuine. Such loves cannot be fixed by dint of effort. And this is what makes it the most difficult part. Paul starts with an impossibility. Let love be genuine. And we say, okay, I'll try harder. And we can't. We cannot pull our loves up by their own bootstraps. 
We must go back to the beginning of chapter 12 and find that it can only be done increasingly by being transformed by the renewing of our minds, by submitting our bodies, minds, and wills to the mercies of God. Leading up to the humility that comes in thinking rightly of ourselves. And how do we think rightly of ourselves? We think of ourselves as those who are bought by Christ, who are in Christ, who have sacrificed and submitted ourselves to Him and His teaching and to His mercy. Thinking ourselves not for ourselves, but for Christ. And thus, by God's grace, coming to love as He loves, to love genuinely. So Paul begins by telling us to love genuinely, without hypocrisy. The next couple of imperatives seem out of place. They possibly, to some, may seem out of place. The flow is love, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection. Why doesn't love one another with brotherly affection come right after the genuine love? It seems like the abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, is out of place. I want to say that it is not true that you cannot get to let love be genuine. You cannot get from let love be genuine to love one another with brotherly affection without first understanding what genuine love looks like. And genuine love, what genuine love looks like is found in those two clauses, in those two imperatives between these two. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. It may strike our modern minds as unusual, perhaps jarring, but there is no genuine love, no love as God loves, without abhorrence. Or if I dare may use the word without hatred. If it is jarring to us that this is so, it is a sign of a deficient understanding of love. Hatred is not the opposite of love. It is a necessary correlative. Apathy is the opposite of love. If we are to love genuinely, we are to love well, we must hate what is evil. We must hate what destroys. If we are to love as God loves, we must hate those things that He hates. There are times when we are made to feel guilty about hating anything at all. And we are told that a truly good and mature man hates nothing. He only loves, but this is not so. Insofar as we do not hate what is evil, we are yet immature and do not yet genuinely love what is good. And so Paul begins the description of genuine love by saying abhor what is evil. And Paul is not unique in this. This is not a first time we find this sort of thing in Scripture. We find it regularly if we read with our eyes open. 
It is not a wrong prayer for us to ask that God help us hate evil as he hates it. Alexander McLaren, Scottish Baptist preacher and theologian from the 19th century, good friend of the Murrays. He wrote in reflecting on this passage, unless we shudderingly recoil from contact with bad in our own lives and refuse to christen it with deceptive euphemisms when we meet it in social and civil life, we shall but feebly grasp and slackly hold that which is good. I'll read it again. Let me read that again. I feel like there's a desire to hear that again. (laughs) Unless we shudderingly recoil from contact with bad in our own lives and refuse to christen it with deceptive euphemisms when we meet it in social and civil life, we shall but feebly grasp and slackly hold that which is good. And this is true. If we do not love well, sometimes it is because we do not hate well and rightly. Now, you may say, TJ, this is dangerous. Hate is powerful. And too often hate is misdirected, and that is true. It is dangerous, and it is powerful, and it is often misdirected and put in the wrong place. But so is love. How destructive, how destructive, how similar, how often the same thing. Misdirected hate and misdirected love. Our misdirected loves are incredibly destructive, incredibly powerful. But with the encouragement to hate evil, we must also insist on holding fast to what is good. I cannot tell you simply to hate. For while I think it is impossible, and I I truly believe it is impossible to truly love and to cling to what is good without abhorring evil, it may be possible to abhor evil without clinging to what is good. We probably have all met the person more than once, who is marked mainly or primarily by their hatreds, by what they are against, by what they are angry at. It's very clear what this person hates. It's less clear what they stand for. It's less clear what they find to be good, what they find to be beautiful. And this is true not just of people, but of whole churches. Indeed, those of us who claim the name Protestant must at times be careful that we are not, main, we are not identified primarily by what we protest against. That the world knows what we say, know what we hate, without ever letting them know what we love and what is good and what is beautiful. The goal is not just to reject evil, but to cling to what is good, to grasp it, to not let go of it, 
to proclaim it. Not just to say this is bad, but to say this is beautiful because it is true and it is good. I suspect that the enemy of our souls is content to have us try to choose one or the other. To just hate. Or to say we shouldn't hate. We should just be tender. As one church publication I recently read said, we should seek to clothe all people in simple, the warm blanket of tender love and non-judgment. That's what the church is there for. And that's it. There is that, and then there is we just hate. We're just against everything evil. The enemy of our soul would love us to have just one and therefore miss the whole picture and therefore miss genuine love. It needs to be both. To quote McLaren again, it needs ever to be insisted upon and never more in this day of spurious charity and unprincipled toleration. Remember, he's writing in the 19th century. In this day of spurious charity and unprincipled toleration, that a healthy hatred of moral evil and sin ought to be the continual accompaniment of all vigorous and manly cleaving to that which is good. We must have both. And it will not do to say that we'll balance these two things out in a way that they sort of just cancel each other out, right? So you love what's good, you hate what's bad, and they're just this balance where we just sort of ignore both of them because you just get two extremes. That is sort of a moral non-existence. I will neither really proclaim what's good nor proclaim what's bad. I just try to get by without doing any of it. And that will not do. We boldly proclaim what is good and hold fast to what is good. And we abhor what is evil. And it is only now, having understood that, that Paul can get us to the next imperative. That we are to love one another with brotherly affection. For the most part, when I hear of love for one another now these days, it seems largely to consist of what that church publication said. That love for one another is a warm blanket of affirmation, we just affirm, and non-judgment. Just affirm them. That's what love is, just affirmation. You're good. You're, whatever you're feeling, you know, we, we, that's great. You're good, and we are not going to judge. This is, I fear, far from a genuine love that abhors evil and clings to what is good. It is far from the examples of biblical love. And it is also far from the examples of love given to us in our classical Western civilization tradition. Aristotle's marvelous book, Nicomachean Ethics, he's trying to write about what is good, what is the good, and what, how we are to achieve it. It is his work of ethics. And right near the climax, he gets to a point where he says, now I'm going to stop and talk about friendship. And I was always, I've, I don't know how many times I've read the book, but I've always t- 
taken aback. Why stop now to talk about friendship? At the very climax of the book, it seems like a diversion until it struck me that this is the heart of his ethic in some sense, just as the heart of our ethic is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. That love relationship, the love comes at the heart of ethics, even for Aristotle. And Aristotle gives us three types of friendship, all of which are good friendships, but three types. The first is the friendship of use. You have something that's useful to me. I have something that's useful to you. So we have this sort of friendship where we help each other along because we are useful to one another. It's fine. It's good. We need those sort of relationships. There's the use The friendship of pleasure, which is fine. It's good. You're really funny, and I find that pleasurable. You find it really pleasurable that I find you funny, and you make me laugh. That's great. We get along well together. We find pleasure in one another. That's great. That's good. The third friendship, though, is friendship for the sake of the good. I see good in you. I see goodness in your character and who you are, and you see goodness in me. And my whole friendship relationship with you is to enhance that goodness in you. To move you closer to what is good. To an embracing of what is good. And you're doing the same to me. You're moving me closer to what is good. And this friendship is pushing us towards goodness. This is similar to what God, I think the Bible means, in, the, in love with brotherly affection. I love you. You're my brother in Christ. I want what is good for you. I want you closer to goodness to God. I want you to reflect Christ more. And I will do what it takes to get you there. Meaning, I will abhor what is evil in you. I will hate those things that are keeping you from becoming more like Christ. And I will love those things and cling to those things in you that are good. We find this over and over in Scripture. Our Matthew 18 passage. What do you do when a brother sinned against you? You go and you confront him. And if he doesn't accept that, you go again with more. If he doesn't accept that, you go again with the church. And if he doesn't accept that, he becomes to you as a Gentile or a tax collector, someone outside the community. He's shut out. He's put away. It's not a warm blanket of tender love and affirmation and not judgment. But why do we do that? so that he may see the error of his ways and repent. The desire is always his repentance, his coming back. We see the error and the destruction of his ways, and we say, no, you may not do that. For your own sake, you may not do that. Luke 17, if you see a brother in sin, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. The repentance is what we desire to affect. 1 Corinthians 5. We have a church that is offering a warm blanket of tender affirmation and non-judgment and is proud of it. 
look at this person we've called in gross sexual immorality, having an affair with his stepmother. And you know what? We're going to put our arm around him and say, you're okay. You're welcome here. And that's fine. And Paul says, what are you doing? Put him out. If he will not repent, put him out from among you so that his soul may be saved. Not your soul, so that his soul may be saved. You seek the good for him. Time and time and time and time again. John, the apostle of love, the one who talks more about love than any other apostle, in his second epistle, says, this is a new commandment. It's not a new commandment, it's an old commandment. Love one another. Love what? What does that mean? Keep his commandments. And, and if someone comes among you who teaches a different doctrine than the doctrine of Christ, don't greet him. Don't receive him. Put him out. The apostle of love says this. But once again, for the sake of the person, so that they may see their, that that is wrong. And we pray for the salvation of their souls. Now we may say this is a kind of love that will not well be received. Person being put out is not going to... Rarely is it the case. Rarely is it the case that the person is going to say, Oh, thank you for throwing me out. Now I see the error of my ways, and I appreciate it. Now I see that you truly love me, and thank you for that. Doesn't happen very often. That doesn't mean we, we should stop loving them truly and genuinely. It's rarely the case any parent will know this. How often do your children, when you say, no, you may not have that third bowl of ice cream, will that children say, I thank you for loving me. Thank you for loving me and caring for my health. The reaction is more often, do you hate me or something? Don't you know that's good for me? Don't you know how much I want that? And you're denying me? What kind of parent are you that hates their children this way? But what do we know? That the act of giving them whatever they want, affirming them in whatever they say, is not an act of love. And I will not stop loving my child. And this is what God asks for us. Is this dangerous? Yes, it is. Because this can, be, this can go wrong in so many ways. And so we go back to last week where we insist on the first thing we must do is be in submission ourselves to Christ. To give ourselves wholly to God as a living sacrifice and never coming to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. We start there in that intersection of right belief and right action, and from there we move to the genuine love that God gives us for each other. And we push each other to be more like Christ. This is what God expects and wants from His people. It's not easy. We never promised that this life, the Christian life, would be easy. We promised just the opposite. It'll be hard. In some sense, God says, you're going to do hard things. I expect my children to do hard things. And I will be with you to carry that burden with you.
and for you. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.